We're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of John. So if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 29 through 34. It's going to be up on the screen as usual, but we also have Bibles over there. And there's Bibles in the pews in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those home. There's also a resource wall over there. All of those books are free. The purpose of those books is for you to take them home and read them and keep them. If you're not someone who keeps books, then read it, process it, and give it to somebody else who you want to talk to it, talk to them about what's in the book. Uh, it's a really beneficial way to uh, share the knowledge of Jesus Christ as well as build it for yourself and a greater love for him. Uh, a couple things to remind you that uh, there's also next to those Pew Bibles Connect cards. I would love for everyone in here to fill out a Connect card. Those, those Connect cards are a way that we, again, we're working and doing as much as we can to keep the church united within these two gatherings. And those connect cards are a way for us to know how to pray for you and honestly how we might be able to serve you. So if you would, even you regular attenders, even you members, fill out those connect cards. We would love for you to do that. And then again, prayer tonight at five o'clock. So please come back and join us as we, uh, we go before the Father once again as a whole church. So if you would now stand with me in reverence for God's word, we're going to read John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Sorry, let me read that again. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God." This is the word of the Lord. Let's go have a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for this chance to come and worship you. Lord, we are here because of what your son Jesus Christ has done in our life. Lord, we are coming together to, to worship as one local body, representing the, the invisible church that's made visible here at Maranatha. Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity. We're grateful for your word that speaks of your son, Jesus, and informs us, informs us of all that we need to understand for life and godliness and salvation. Lord, please help us now. Give us hearts to receive this truth, to, to, to receive and not harden after what you speak about in this text. Lord, be with us as we prepare our hearts even to witness baptism recognizing that it points to your son, Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for all that he has done in our lives. It's in his name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. So last week, uh, as we've continued in this series uh, of the Gospel of John, last week I, I sort of told an overall story or gave the overall scene for the next couple of sermons. As well, we learned about some of the players that are in John's Gospel. And the reason why we did that is because if you don't understand who those players are, you're going to have a bit of a, uh, of a difficulty as we continue to walk through the rest of this sermon series. And hopefully, 
because of what we did there, because uh, we did talk about those different players, you have a, a better understanding of who John the Baptist was, uh, who and how those Jewish leaders are operating, and really why John the Baptist's message was both exciting but also very challenging for the Jewish people. And today, we're going to pick up that narrative Today, we're going we're gonna to pick it up on the next day, as you read in verse 29. By John's own narration, this is the actual day that John the Baptist sees Jesus for who he truly is, the Lamb of God. So follow along with me in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now there's a lot in just those three, uh, those three verses. There's a lot here to process. One, John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Two, John then continues with this statement by affirming that Jesus is the one who, make, who takes away the sin of the world. Three, John the Baptist then quotes himself, again, referencing Jesus's internality. And then four, John says something interesting about not knowing Jesus, despite the fact that his mom, Elizabeth, and Jesus's mother, Mary, were related, and therefore, most likely, John and Jesus were in each other's presence as they grew up. It's also interesting about John's claim that there are only two books of the Bible that actually refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. It's this one, the, the Gospel of John, as well as Revelation, which both books are actually written by the Apostle John. But why? Why does John refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God? You see, the Son of God, Jesus, Jesus Christ, is given all sorts of names throughout the Bible, and each name tells us something about him. Each name is meant to articulate some sort of aspect that Jesus represents for us or about God. So again, why would John refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God? And like I said, there are multiple references throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, but let me just show you two major ones from the Old Testament. In Genesis 22, Abraham was told to take his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. So you can imagine the difficulty that Abraham was wrestling with, the confusion and the, maybe the frustration that Abraham had weighing on him that he was obviously emotionally wrestling with. After all, Isaac was the, the son that was promised to Abraham by God as well as he was to be the one who was meant to carry on the heritage and the legacy of the Jewish people. Why would God ask him to take this promised son and then sacrifice him? So much confusion and difficulty, not understanding what to do, but through faithful obedience, hear that, through confusion and difficulty and emotional turmoil, Abraham followed through with faithful obedience. Abraham followed what God instructed, and thankfully, and thankfully, just as Abraham raised the knife, the angel of the Lord called out and stopped Abraham. But through faithful obedience, he was willing to do what God was telling him to do. Now, there's so much more to the story, but in that moment, God provided another way. God provided another way. Suddenly, there was a ram, a male lamb caught in the nearby thicket, and Abraham then was instructed 
to sacrifice that animal instead. Now, this wasn't meant to be expiation of Abraham's sins. It wasn't that type of sacrifice, but hopefully you can see the typology of how it points forward to Christ. Am I right? You with me? We can see how it points forward to Christ. And then the second major reference that I want to bring up in the Bible comes from Exodus 12. There, Moses, he writes about how God rescues his people from Egypt. In Exodus, we can read about the 10 plagues that God poured out on Egypt because their Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go out of slavery, right? A lot of us know the story. But it's that last plague that speaks so clearly or reveals so clearly that Jesus, Jesus as the Lamb of God. You see, the final plague, the final plague that God delivered upon Egypt was to be the death of all the firstborn sons in the land, all of them. It was to come to everyone, but Moses and Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother, were supposed to tell and instruct all of God's people about how they could be protected from God's inevitable wrath. So this was being poured out essentially on the whole world, but there was a way for them to be protected from God's inevitable wrath. They were supposed to take a lamb without blemish. That means that it had to be a perfect lamb. We know from Exodus that it had to be one-year-old and perfect, and then sacrifice it, and then that night take the lamb's blood and spread it across the doorposts. And by doing this, and through believing the word to be true, because God had promised that his spirit would pass over their home and that they would not experience the judgment that he was delivering. By doing this and believing God's promise to be true, he, he spoke through Moses to his people, believing the word to be true. If they did this and they followed after faithful obedience, then they too would not experience the judgment that he was about to deliver. Again, hopefully you can see how the sacrificial lamb foreshadows what Jesus Christ, in fact, did accomplish for us on the cross as his blood was also spilt. Are you with me? So those are two really clear examples. This explains then the title and how John the Baptist supernaturally exclaims, Behold, as he sees Jesus coming towards him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They understood these Old Testament stories and prophecies and recognized that it foreshadowed something because without the lamb, the Jewish people would have suffered God's wrath. Without the lamb, the Jewish people would have suffered God's wrath. And without Jesus Christ, our sin would not be taken away. Without Christ, our sin cannot be taken away. We would remain enemies of God. We would not be reconciled to the Father. And we would receive our just and right sentence, which is death. That is the inevitable payment for sin. That is what Scripture is clear about. But God provided the lamb, right? God did provide a sacrifice, right? And God, God the Father provided his perfect son for us, for all who believe in his promised word. All we have to do is cling to what Christ is and who he is and what he has done for us. And then John the Baptist then quotes himself. He says, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Remember that John the Baptist was a prophet and that God spoke to his people through his prophets. And what John is in fact saying here when he says that this man comes before me, what he was saying was that even though I'm six months older, remember Jesus or John and Jesus knew one another physically. John knew who this man was and he's saying, even though 
uh, I'm six months older, he comes before me because he is from the beginning. This is a supernatural revelation. He is from the beginning. Remember, this quote goes back to Jesus' incarnation, which is the doctrine of God taking on flesh. God literally came down to us and took on our flesh, and what carries out is he then pays the penalty of death for us so we have no fear any longer. That's the promise of the incarnation. That is why that matters so much. But then John says something strange, right? He says something strange in verse 31. I myself uh, did not know him. John's literally making these remarks about Jesus as he's walking towards him. And then he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And we all probably know about Jesus' birth and how he was born to the Virgin Mary and how that was uh, such a miracle. Jesus had no earthly father physically like you and I do. God placed, Mary in, or, or God placed Jesus in Mary's womb. As well, last week, what we talked about, that John the Baptist's birth was also miraculous. Elizabeth, his mother, was considered barren, but God, in his providence, allowed her and Zechariah to birth John. And if you look through the genealogies in the other Gospels, what you'd find is that, again, Mary and Elizabeth were related. Some commentators even believe that they were first cousins. So in the fact, in Luke 1, we read that Mary actually visits Elizabeth when she finds out that she's pregnant with Jesus. So they knew each other. They had to have. So why would John the Baptist say that he didn't know Jesus when it was likely that he grew up visiting him, even playing with him as a child? Why would he say such a thing? And honestly, this this threw me as I was trying to process this. But you see, what's going on here is that John the Baptist, again, may have known Jesus as a man, But not until the Holy Spirit identified him as the Messiah did John rightly see him as the promised Lamb of God. This truth has to come supernaturally to us. We have to be transformed in order to understand the truth. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me That is God, to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And we know from the other Gospels, the other Gospel accounts that this is the moment of Jesus' baptism, and in all the other accounts, a dove descends upon Jesus, which represents the Holy Spirit's anointing of him, and signifies the beginning of his earthly ministry. So this is a a way of proclamation that this is Jesus. And again, we read as we continue on, if that's not enough, the full trinity then is suddenly represented where a voice comes from the heavens and the eternal Father speaks and he says, this is my beloved Son, which whom I am well pleased. This is an amazing moment in history. Can you imagine being there? Even think about the scene once again. You have these Jewish leaders and these Levite protectors, these, this, this uh, military service, and these people who are confused about this Messiah and what is John saying, and suddenly this dove descends and lands on a person, which is strange enough, but then these voices, this voice comes towering out of the heavens and proclaims that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Imagine that moment. It would be incredible and breathtaking and awesome in the fullest sense of the word. 
But you see, John's baptism, what John the Baptist is doing, John's baptism wasn't meant, it is, rather is meant to be like ours. It's meant to be a profession. John's baptism is not able to provide salvation. Okay? It's meant to show a profession. John's baptisms weren't able to provide salvation, but rather signify the inner transformation of faith and obedience that we receive towards Christ. Like John, who proclaimed that he was but a voice, baptism is but a sign. John the baptism, John the Baptist was but a voice, and baptism is but a sign. It's meant to direct our attention away from the one who's actually being baptized and point us to look to the one that we are identifying with. Are you with me in that? Baptism in this act, as we are doing it today, Maria, this is not about Maria. This is about Christ. This is the one who we are identifying with. This is why we do what we do. And at this moment in the story, back to this this story in John, at this moment in the story, John not only properly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, he also proclaims what Jesus Christ has come to do. He not only identifies him correctly, but he tells us what Jesus is here to do. John says that Jesus is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the one who provides spiritual new birth. Jesus is the only one who is capable of doing so. He is the one who provides spiritual new birth. In the Old Testament, there was this expectation that God would pour out his spirit on his people, and then he would give them new life. And like the lamb, you can see the typology all through the Old Testament. Here are three three representations. In in Isaiah 44, God likens his spirit to fresh water and how life is brought to to a field as that water is then poured out. This is just like how our spiritual life is brought about in the people of God. God pours out his spirit and brings about life. Then in Ezekiel 37, when God has his prophets speak to these dry and dead bones and through the wind, God's breath brings them from death to life. It literally articulates how the sinews and the muscles and the skin begin to form on these dead bones and it turns them into an army for the Lord. It's incredible if you think about it. And then in Joel 2, God says directly, Directly, it can't be more clear than this. He says directly that he will pour out his spirit and that the sons and daughters will experience his gift for there is a judgment to come. But for all of those who shall escape, all of those who will be forgiven of sin, who will be saved, are those whom the Lord calls. Whom the Lord calls. He is the one who provides this new life. And that brings us to two great questions. Those three passages bring us to two of our greatest questions that everyone asks. How might I be saved and what am I saved from? How might I be saved and what might I be saved from? And the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, are perfectly clear. Perfectly clear. We need saving from God's just and righteous wrath over our sin. Amen. Do you understand that whole point? We are not saved from a difficult life. We are not saved from, 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 uh, from other false things in life. We are literally saved from God. Christ 
came to die and allow God's wrath to be poured out on him instead of on us. We must be saved from God's wrath. Does that disrupt your idea of Christianity? That is what the scriptures proclaim. But there's hope. There's hope. The weight of feeling that, we, that God's wrath may be upon us. Hear me, there is hope. There's a way of rescue, and it's provided once again by the Lamb. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. That word healed just brings about such great hope in us. Just that one simple word, but what are we healed from? What is it that we're healed from? Does Jesus heal us from the wounds that have been afflicted upon us? Are we healed from a disability that maybe we're, we, we still possess or we're still wrestling with? Is it healing from anxiety or depression or addiction or greed or narcissism? No, it's not. It's not any of those things. Now, it's true, we may and we can find comfort and possibly even relief or healing from all of those afflictions, but the Lamb came to heal us from death. From death. None of those things. He came to heal us from death. When Jesus ascended back into heaven after his bodily resurrection, he sent us a heavenly helper to dwell within the people of God on earth, to dwell within us. And this is the baptism that John is talking about. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at your new birth. This is what we talked about when Christ comes and tabernacles with us. He is living within us. We are the new temple. His presence is literally within us. This new birth is when we are transformed from helpless sinners into sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. That is what the gospel is proclaiming to us. And this is such glorious news for all of us today. Each and every one of us, this is such glorious news, but especially for those who haven't yet repented of their sins and turned to follow after Jesus Christ. It is such glorious news because he is perfectly willing, hear me, he is perfectly willing and fully able to release you from all the weight that you're carrying. Whatever it is that you are sitting there and you feel the weight on your shoulders and the burden in your heart, and as your breath is labored with the stress that you're carrying, he is perfectly able to cast that off your shoulders. Now, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is our guarantee of salvation. That is what is proclaimed. That is what we understand. This is our guarantee of salvation, but it is also when we are commissioned for our Christian work as his disciples. It is our given freedom, but it is also our call to service. We are told in the book of Acts that once we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, again, this is, the effect, this is what effectually causes our conversion. Every one of us, every one of us is then sent to be witnesses of the truth. So I ask yourself, I ask you, are you out there? Are you, are you active witnesses of the truth? Are you, in fact, going out and talking to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and, and, and your fellow students, the random person at the gas station or the coffee shop? Are you fulfilling the commissioning that Christ has given you? Are you fulfilling what Acts is telling us that we are all called to do? Every one of us is sent to be a witness of the truth. 
Next week, we're really going to dig in and we're going to hear about how we're all called to be disciples. Next week would be a fantastic time to invite some friends who you're ministering to or you're attempting to share the gospel with because we're going to explain to you what the call to discipleship looks like. But today, let me tell you what a disciple actually is. What is an actual disciple? Because if we're called to be disciples who make disciples, then I think we should probably know what we are. A disciple, you see, simply explained is a learner. A disciple is simply a learner. Therefore, discipleship is about learning. But it's not just knowledge. It's not just trying to acquire knowledge because it's easy for us to associate learning with academics, right? It's easy for us to associate acquiring knowledge through academics, but for Jesus' disciples, the focus wasn't just a mastery of this wealth of knowledge, this, this well of information. Rather, what they were learning was a way of life based on an understanding of eternal truths. They were learning, what they were learning was a way of life based on an understanding of eternal truths. Truths. The ultimate goal was not for them to understand or to know everything that the teacher knows. Rather, it was to be like the teacher. You follow me there? It wasn't to know everything that he knew. Rather, it was to be like the teacher. A book called The Vine Project puts it like this. They weren't learning a subject. They were learning a person. The book also lays out two powerful symbols which are seen which are, or should be seen in every single disciple's life. One is baptism and the other is the yoke. Baptism and the yoke. Let me explain. You see, Jesus is constantly telling people who wanted to follow after him that this, that this decision is a life and death commitment. It's a life and death commitment. If, you're, if you are truly willing or truly desire to follow after him, then you have to disregard everything else. You have to let go of everything else. You have to leave everything behind. Now, we've talked about this in past sermons. We've talked about this idea. You just can't have it both ways. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot trying to follow after Jesus. You just can't do that. And that's why baptism is such an incredible and powerful symbol for the disciple, because it's a witness of faithful obedience. It's a witness of faithful obedience. It signifies repentance, the washing away of the old self and a starting, a starting over with the new. It also testifies that the disciple is willing to die and also be raised again with Christ. The recognition that we are leaving everything behind and going forward with Christ. And it tells the world, the disciple says to the world through baptism, I am willing to turn away from everything that I thought about life and work towards relearning the truth from the one who knows all truth. That is the disciple's mindset. You're willing to let go of everything that you think you understand about this world, everything you think you understand about this life, and you are willing to relearn it according to the knowledge that he provides and the wisdom that he gives us. And that sounds strange. That sounds strange to us, again, in this life, because it's this call to relearn, because we often think of learning in the way of academics. Because in academics, what we do there is we accumulate knowledge because we don't know anything about the subject. We literally begin with an empty slate. We literally begin from scratch. 
But every single person who is called to be a disciple, or rather no one who is called to be a disciple, starts from scratch. No one starts with a blank slate. Everyone, at every moment in time who comes to Christ, comes with a very full life. Am I right? Burdens and issues and frustrations and all those things we talked about, anxieties and depression and addictions, we all come to Christ with a very full life. And the reality is, and what the Bible makes perfectly clear, is that we are all enslaved. We are all enslaved to our own way of thinking and acting which is naturally opposed to Jesus Christ. How you view all of those things that we carry, we are naturally, the way we think about them, the way that we operate with them, we are naturally opposed to the ways of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to relearn? Are you willing to change your ideals? Are you willing to look to the knowledge of what Christ is revealing through his word? We're all filled with darkness and foolishness and deceit and anxieties, again, from our false ideals. And this causes such an intense burden upon our life and relationships. We all can recognize that. That's why the other powerful symbol for the disciple is the yoke. That's why the the, the second powerful symbol for the disciple is the yoke. Listen to Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Hello, that is us. That is me. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Taking the yoke upon yourself is a metaphor for submission and service and obedience. Yes, like the oxen whose job it is to plow the field, we too are meant to accept his authority and to call as we are called into service for our Lord. This is, this is true. But even though Christ has all authority, as he is the one who created all things, therefore he is the one who, who knows all things and therefore determines all things, even though this is all him, even though he is all of that, he is also the lamb. He is the one who brings rest. Yes, he is the one who brings peace. He is the one who provides us with salvation. There is no other way. He is the only one who is able to baptize with the Holy Spirit. The yoke of Christ does require total submission. There is no way around that. It requires total submission. So you consider yourself a disciple today. It requires total submission. But it's not a burden. It's freedom. It's freedom. The weight that you are carrying, the burden as you walk with all of those things we we mentioned as you continue to try and go through this life, it is freedom from the heavy burden of those sins in which we all know the weight. We are not here as a church pretending like we have all the answers. Only thing we know to do is point to Christ. We all, we, we receive the freedom that is heavy from our burden of sin and we all know the weight. It is freedom for us to learn a new way to live in this life, a way that is designed for the kingdom of heaven, a way that is meant to reveal the kingdom of heaven as we are one day going to go there. Maranatha means, come Lord, we are looking forward to the things that are eternal. But there is promise for today. We can have peace and hope again and rest and relief because of the land as we take off the yoke of sin and we put on the yoke of Christ, which is light and not burdensome. 
Today we are baptizing Maria Fenters as she is a willing disciple of Christ and has come under the yoke of authority with joyful submission. It is a wonderful and beautiful thing. And with that, I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to be I want you to ask yourself this question, so so please do. Am I truly baptized in the Holy Spirit? Are you truly baptized in the Holy Spirit? By everything I exclaim, do you actually possess the new life that's promised in Christ? If you've come to the realization that you don't, you can be today. You can be today. You've heard the truth, and our Lord already knows everything about you, so you don't need to hide. And I know that the Holy Spirit is able to save. He is willing to take the burden from you. What it requires of you is a repentant heart and a reception of God's Son. That's all it requires. It requires a heart of repentance and a willingness to receive God's Son. And if you have, if you have and you consider and you have assurance that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, praise the Lord, then this will be you. Your heart will seek to follow Jesus Christ in everything and you'll be willing to proclaim with confidence, just like John the Baptist, that you have seen and you're willing to bear witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. We're going to have... Maria, come up here now. We're going to get ready to baptize her. It is a glorious day where we get to come as the church. Baptism is a twofold thing. One, it is a profession of the disciple, the, the, the follower of Christ, the daughter in this case of who the Lord is, of our Heavenly Father. But it also is a blessing as the church to get to come with you and affirm her faith. Affirm that she does believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and everything in this word is true is a glorious and wonderful moment. Let me get you. My fault for putting it so far away. It's a glorious thing. Let me pray for us in the, for the sermon, and then we'll continue with uh, Maria's testimony. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you come and you are the one who, who rescues us, that you have come down to us, you have taken on flesh, you have paid the penalty of sin that we deserve to pay, and you have removed the fear of death and the wrath of God from our head. Lord, be with us now, even as we celebrate baptism and we have the opportunity to point back towards your son through this, uh, through this sacrament that we get to celebrate as the church. Lord, be with us. Soften our hearts to hear this truth. We love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.